Hello and welcome back to the Renegades of Podcast. Uh, this is once again the show that interviews famous punk musicians. We are on episode uh, 49, might be 50, maybe 48. Uh, have yet to get a punk musician on. Uh, and, you know, I text him every time, you know, I, I get in contact with Henry Rollins and I say, hey, how are you doing? I am a right wing conservative uh, who believes in fascism for America, and I'd love to have you on my podcast. And um, I have been so surprised at their closed mindedness. I have been so surprised that they, for some reason, do not want to listen to somebody with different views. But hey, you know, I mean, that's their problem. That's not mine. I'm doing my best to be an honest interviewer, and they're being liars. So if they want to keep lying, they can keep lying. But uh, Henry Rollins, you're on my shit list, fucker. That's not true. This is the Cooper Lighting is Alone podcast. We are back. Uh, there's still a hole in my wall. I hope you like it. Gotten one good review from a trusted friend. Uh, maybe this could be a thing. I mean, I'm trying to get it fixed, but maybe it could be a thing. Maybe maybe that's the glue that this podcast needed. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Been, uh, been trying to not drink. Uh, got lunch with my dad. He's, uh, he's a sober guy. Been working the program for a while, and it's been working him. Um, he's doing good. So I told him, I was like, yeah, I think I probably have to quit drinking. And what's good about uh, having a dad that uh, also has issues is that you tell him that, and he just goes, oh, cool. Yeah, no, great. I mean, his other, you know, he's like, yeah, no, I can tell you what meetings to go to. We can just get that going if you want. Up to you, though. You know, it's not forcing anything. And it's like, oh, wow, thank you. This is so much easier than if you were like a fucking pearl clutcher and I tell you that and you're like, oh my God, my boy, my whole family has gone down the drain, you know? It's a lot better this way. He was telling me about meetings. He was, uh, I didn't know this. I don't think this is secret knowledge. I don't want to give any secrets of the clan away, but uh, that's what I call AA, the clan. They don't like it. Um, he was telling me there's different types of meetings because uh, a lot of times I think people think of a meeting, they think you sit in a circle and everybody has to speak and you have to say, I'm an alcoholic, and then you have to tell your story or whatever. He was telling me uh, that there's opened and closed meetings. So I think the one that I just described is a closed meeting. It's uh, people that are fully sober. They admit they're alcoholics, usually smaller groups, the more dedicated bunch, okay? Can't just waltz in there. You said there's also open meetings, which a lot of times are sort of bigger groups, it will have like a speaker and you'll kind of just be in like an auditorium and you're not, nobody, not everybody's talking. Very few people are talking. And I think the funniest part that makes total sense, but it is very funny is that at the open meetings, you don't have to admit you're an alcoholic, which I think is great that you can go and get help, but you still can be like, well, no, I'm not a fucking alcoholic, but yes, I am at the meeting to quit drinking because I have a problem, but I don't, I'm not trying to do the whole thing. You know what I mean? And I've been, uh, I haven't gone to a meeting yet. Uh, I'm thinking about it. I did not want to go to meetings for drinking for a while because I was like, well, I'm not like an everyday fucking insane alcoholic. Like I had a couple months where I was drinking every day, you know, but I'm also 24. If you don't have a couple months at least in your early 20s where you drink every single day, then I don't know, maybe you're studying to be a doctor. And even then, you can still do that. But that would happen 
And then whenever I drink, I just, I usually can't stop drinking. I don't have self-control. So that's the point where I'm at, where I'm like, listen, I don't think it's, uh, I'm sorry if I already talked about this. I'm going to do it again. Uh, you know, it's not at the point where it's like, wow, I'm out of control, but it's like, if I do allow myself to drink, then there's no breaks. So obviously this isn't going to be a thing that can work long-term. Like I can't allow myself to drink every day because I know I'm not able to have a glass of wine a day. I would want to finish the bottle. So that's not in the cards. That's clear. It's also clear that alcohol is very addictive. And if I didn't take care of it, I probably would just end up drinking every day. And I would drink as much as I want every day. And it would be a real issue. So, you know, I look at it now where it's like I don't have a problem necessarily. But my my potential for a problem is very high. Because I come from a long line on both pretty much... Pretty much every single man in my family, except for like two, has struggled with drugs or alcohol to the point they had to get sober and work a program, some, you know, rehab stuff. And uh, some people have disproven the whole alcohol genetic thing, but I do think there is some similarity, some genes, at least of impulsivity, lack of self-control, uh, Whatever it is that makes somebody like escapism with the use of drugs and alcohol, I think that has to be kind of genetic. Mental illness obviously can be too, so that's involved. So it's like it's all in me. But, you know, I was afraid to go to meetings because I was like, well, what am I going to do? Go and tell them nothing? I don't have – I thought – I think I thought you needed a rock bottom to go. And I'm. I think what's good nowadays is that young people like me – Especially just with people being more open about it. Also, they're just being like podcasts and shit about it. Like you just hear about it. That you realize you don't actually have to hit a rock bottom. You can realize there's a problem and then go, oh, I can stop now before it's so much harder later. And that's just sort of an obvious conclusion of hearing so many different things. I mean, it is funny because it's like I was born into a family... Well, not born into. Actually, we were, we were clean up until I was 12, and then people got funny. You know, my brother started getting into drugs, made my dad relapse, and then we got two boys a little off the handles. And it is funny because it's like uh, my mom would worry about me, but she would kind of say, and my brother would say, a lot of older people in my family would say, like, well, you know, it's really sad, but, you know, you've learned from this, so you'll never do those things. And listen, I haven't done heroin, but it's like I've done a lot of other things. Like, I didn't take an actually good lesson away from it. It was like, okay, my brother did heroin. So if I do heroin, my mom is going to be so mad. Because the first son that does heroin, you're like, this is terrible. This is so unexpected, and this is awful. The second son that does heroin is like, are you stupid? Do you see how much fucking money we spent on this guy to stop doing heroin? Do you think we can afford another run of smack? What is wrong with you? We don't have time for this. We have no time for this. I'm remarried. I'm trying to retire happily. I can't have another son doing the same drug. Like, even if I did cocaine, it would just be better for the family. Because they'd be like, well, at least nobody told him. You know what I mean? Like, at least he just didn't know. I mean, he should know because drugs are drugs and you saw an addict, so you should just learn. But there's something different about that. You know, and cocaine is fun. You know, I'd be more fun at the Christmas party, falling asleep. You know, at, you know, that's what my, my you know. So my family members do, they'd fall asleep at the Christmas party, and that's a good, you know, that's a great thing for a kid to see. 
that teaches you that downers are no... You know what I learned most from having addicts in the family was not really subtle, overarching rules about addiction or just good lessons to take away. I took away very specific lessons. Like, I learned that if you don't sleep enough and you drink and you take pills that are downers, you will fall asleep at the family Christmas party at the table. Not like, oh, we've been here for four hours. He ate a bunch of food. Now he's full napping on the couch. I'm talking about like 15 minutes into the occasion, sitting at the dinner table with the lace tablecloth, and you're nodding forward about to forehead some mashed potatoes. I know not to do that. If I'm being honest, the jury is still out on doing coke and going to the Christmas party. I wouldn't do it because I have done cocaine, and I think I would be too chatty at the Christmas party. I would ask to hold my cousin's babies. I'd be like, let me hold the baby. And they'd be like, well, you know, and I'd get real, you know, I'd be like, give me, it's my family, you know? So I wouldn't do that. But I am saying, like, I would definitely, the chances of me trying that are are infinitesimally larger, infinitely larger than doing a downer. You take very specific lessons away. I cannot do heroin because my brother beat me to it, you know? But, um, you know, so that's that's what you learn. But it is funny because it's like, you know, my brother also smoked cigarettes and... I used to think cigarettes were dumb. I didn't understand it. I was like, why would you smoke something that kills you and it doesn't even get you high? That doesn't make sense. Because I smoked weed and I was like, this is great. How could, why would anyone do cigarettes when you could do this and you get high? And then I smoked one cigarette and I was like, oh, it's good because you don't get high. I get it now. I feel fucking great. I feel calmer. I feel more focused, but I'm not high. I can smoke this, take a break from work, go back inside, be better at work. That's crazy. And then from there, standing outside comedy clubs as a 17-year-old, I remember I'd go to the improv, and uh, they would allow me to do the mic and perform on the stage. But since I was 17, I had to stand outside of the club on the patio until it was my time to go up and somebody would tell me and I'd come in. And in that time, I, you know, it was nice because I met every comedian in L.A. who smoked cigarettes, and I bummed every cigarette I could off of them until after a couple years I owed the entire scene like a card in each. You know, and then I started buying my own cigarettes uh, to be polite because you can't keep bumming. And then, you know, now I smoke a pack a day. Um, but, you know, now I'm a big Zin fan. Um, and I just, uh, I trying to replace it. No, I just do both. So the nicotine addiction is off to the races uh, because it's, it's the greatest drug known to man. Um, there's just something about it that, you know what it is that I think is really great about it is it, can really improve your focus, it can calm you down, and even if all that's placebo, smoking a cigarette or putting a pouch into your mouth, whether it's Zin or Dip or whatever, you just feel like it's going to, even if it was fake, the act makes you feel assured. And it's the best because the more you do of it, it's not like it gets better. It's just the one dose is the perfect amount. So it's like you can, of course, get horribly addicted and just keep chain smoking, but at the same time, is you can't really like binge cigarette. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not like oh, let's have twenty of these like a beer, you know. So in that way, it's very addictive, but its purpose doesn't lend to whatever. 
But um, so you take specific lessons away. Some lessons you ignore and, you know, things change. You know, I remember when I was younger, my brother said, uh, if you ever smoke a cigarette, I'll punch you in the face. And uh, I appreciated that. You know, I didn't believe him because he is a tough guy, but he's a sweet guy. And I'm his brother. Um, and he never actually beat me up as a kid. You know, he'd fuck with me. He's an older brother. But I, he never, like, punched me in the face. But then, you know, he said he punched me in the face if I ever smoked a cigarette. And then cut to six years later and we're smoking cigarettes next to each other. And it's actually one of the, the nicer moments in our relationship. Um, it's kind of a thing of like, hey, you know, we all grow up and make mistakes, but this mistake is pretty nice, right? How about this? We love each other, you know? So, I don't know. I'm uh, probably going to uh, go to a meeting, just see if I like it. I mean, the decision's clear that I need to start heading in the direction of quitting alcohol. I, you know, I took a, you know, like a week break, which is nothing, but can be a lot, you know what I mean? Even though I wasn't drinking every night, just telling yourself I'm not going to drink this week is a huge wall you build immediately. Um, but, you know, the real reason I don't want, I'm scared, to, I want to, but I'm scared to actually commit and say, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I will not drink again, is that now, if I drink, it's not having a drink, it's a relapse, there's weight to it. I have a chip, and the second I take a sip of alcohol, that chip, whatever amount of time it was for, means nothing. You know what I mean? And the first chip you get says one day at a time, so you can just keep that your whole life, you know? Um, but, yeah, it's tough. It's just, you know, it takes the fun out of it, you know? Right now, I'm not in the program. I'm just saying, oh, I think I should quit drinking. So then if I have a drink, it's kind of like, eh, I probably shouldn't, but, you know, hey, we didn't make any commitments. You haven't turned your back. You're not a liar. You are doing something that you have suggested you probably shouldn't do. There's a lot less weight to that. And, you know, the problem when you're 24 is you, you kind of look at the future and you go like, okay, so I say I won't drink again. I'm 24. You know, uh, God forbid I live 50 more years. That's 50 years of every single day having to make the choice to not drink because there's no way that I would go throughout my life without thinking about drinking. I would say at least once every other day, if not once a day, at least. And, you know, I was talking to my therapist who also works in recovery uh, stuff or whatever in, you know, rehabs and stuff. And he was like, well, that's why they say one day at a time. You can say you're going to quit drinking and it's okay if you drink the next day. It's just about making what you think is the right decision the next day. It's all your choice. And that is the best advice I think a human can give. Uh, that's why I really like existentialism and John Paul Sartre. And, it, you know, it sucks that people think existentialism is uh, we're all going to die so nothing matters, you know, or there is no God so nothing matters. It's such the opposite belief. It's, no, there is no God, which doesn't mean nothing matters. It means there's no preordained set of things that are supposed to happen, which really means that everything matters, that every single second you live, you make a choice to do what you do, and you get better at whatever you do. So if you sit on the couch all day and do nothing, you're not doing nothing. You're getting better at sitting on the couch all day and being unproductive. And I think the reason that that obviously caught on, but did never it never beat any religion, well, it's still a, a minority in, in terms of belief systems, is that I think that is terrifying. I think that is horrific to people to have to reckon with the fact that they are in charge. 
And a lot of people really don't want that because there's not a lot of comfort in that immediately. There's comfort about it if you really think about it to where then when you say it doesn't matter, what it really, what you can really say is like, well, I can't really be wrong. There's no wrong or right. There's no God. There's no ob objective truth to anything, which means that the only thing that's true is my subjective experience and perception. of. So at that point, uh, I have all the power. At that point, everything's okay. At that point, I can realize what I am capable of and believe that it's possible instead of saying, well, it's God's plan. No, it's your plan. And that is the most, I think, motivating, positive belief system on earth. It just does it without a safety net. But you just have to kind of enjoy the free fall. And, you know, that's like one of those things, like Louis C.K. has a joke about, like, there's a lot of things I believe, but I don't do, you know. And that is kind of like existentialism for me, where I really like it. I believe it. I'd say that's how I like to look at the world. But then when it comes to actually living that, what it means is you wake up and you go, okay, I decide what's going to happen today. And I decide what I'm going to choose to practice and get better at and also accept that I will never be perfect at it. Which is another, that was one of my favorite things I learned when I was still taking philosophy classes was, uh, I've talked about this before, but you know, the guy that talks about you, uh, Christians want to be godly, which means they want to be perfect. And I think they're misinterpreting what God wants is that God made you mortal, which means you can never be perfect because you're mortal. You're, you have original sin in you. And a lot of people think that's terrible, but really what it means is that you're almost more infinite than God because... God is perfect. He's done. There's no better that God can be. You don't have a limit to how good you can be, which means everything you do, you get better at until the day you die, and you will never die until you die because there's no end of progression before your death, you know? And so that's existentialism with God, but I think you can take God out of that. You can just call it perfection, you know? And really, yeah, all of that, uh, talking about not drinking stuff, is potential, where it's like, yeah, you're never going to get to a point of not drinking where you simply no longer want to drink anymore. That's not going to happen. It's going to be a, a possibly daily battle until the day you die. You're just going to get stronger at fighting that battle to the point that it kind of feels like you're not fighting it anymore. But really, you just have a well-armored fortress that at many times still has a lot of holes in it that you're surprised by even 50 years in, I'm sure. I mean, I, I assume that people who have been, you know, working the program for a while would agree. I think my father would have to agree. Even he relapsed. He had like 20 years, you know? <coughs> so, you know, that's what it is, is you got to, I have to look at my life. I have to look at my problems and I have to actually accept the fact that I'm the one that has to change them. And that that change is not a short two-year process that once I'm done, I'm done. It's no, no, no. You're going to change the way you live forever. And you're going to have to make a decision for that way of life to continue, which is really the part that sucks is that, oh, that's just it's just the same decision over and over again. You know what I mean? Like, like my dad was telling me about a guy in AA. I'm not going to go into specifics. It's anonymous. Also, my dad's not an AA. Um, he was telling me about a guy that's been working the program for 50 years. He's like 80. He, he hasn't drank in like 54 years. And I think that's great. But what's terrifying is that the motherfucker is still going to meetings, which means he's he's been clean for 50 years. And for some reason, he still has to go to meetings. 
and I'm sure he enjoys it. I'm sure there's a community of it. And I think that community makes it more fun, but also I think that community is saving his life, that if he stopped going to those meetings, he'd lose that community, and all those thoughts of drinking that he's conquered over the last 50 years would come flooding back in, in, a, in a lightning quick way, in a way that would ruin his life. And um, that's scary, you know? But also, we, we, the other way you can look at it is that well, look how strong this guy's been to make the decision for 50 years and to keep making it, you know? But, you know, it's not fun, and I don't know if I'm really that fun of a guy. Uh, I think insecurities like that lead people to keep drinking. I think whatever's fun about me when I'm drunk can be fun about me when I'm sober, and I shouldn't be afraid of that. But, you know, I will say I've been smoking a little more weed lately. I hang out with comics all the time, especially at work. We are in groups. We're riffing. We're just joking. It's not really real conversation. It's just this one topic that uh, you're just sort of trying to get the most out of. And weed ruins the process for me. I mean, I have been bombing with my friends harder than I ever have. And I can't even get a word in now. It's really hard to talk. And that was never my problem. I always, uh, you know, I really, I always really try to, to get my word out, to talk about stuff in conversation and and get laughs, of course, because I'm desperate. And lately, I've just been getting interrupted. And then when I get to speak, it just falls flat. And I know what I'm about to say is not going to be funny by the time I'm done saying it. And I blame Conan O'Brien because I have been listening to a lot of his podcasts, and he's a real old-timey riffer. And I'm telling you, I have picked up some traits, and I am coming in to 2023 with uh, riffs to other young people that uh, would maybe work with Dana Carvey, but uh, not the youth. Um, and it's just not working out. Um, before that, I was listening to a lot of Shane Gillis killing it in the riff circles. One of the best riffers we got in the game taken lessons from him and then I thought you know what I'm acting like this guy on stage this is bad I cannot be copying comedians at this point I mean I wasn't stealing jokes but he does a specific thing where he holds the mic with two hands at once it's kind of close to his face and I was standing on stage and I realized I was holding the mic like this and I was like I don't do this why am I doing this and I was like oh because a guy I think is very funny is doing it this is bad you know and I'm a young comics it's always you know common to uh to sort of still be very influenced by older, funnier people when you're still finding your voice, you know? Because when you haven't sort of nailed down your voice on stage, what it also means is that your voice is like a really permeable membrane. It has a lot of holes in it. It's like a sponge, you know? So anything that you touch, you soak up a lot more easily. Like, I think when you really have a distinct way of speaking and being on stage, it's really hard to penetrate because there's no more room You've built such a character and an act and a perspective that other people's perspectives, even if you like them, there's just less room to fit in there. And it's not really that, like, it's not like the perfect thing. It's not like the you're finished thing. It's just like the, well, if I start acting like that guy, then this other way I act stops making sense. And then what I have kind of crumbles because I'm not being honest with myself anymore. There's not a through line to my tone and personality and it's done. But, you know, right now there's a, I don't think there really is enough of a tone or a through line. I think people are very confused by me on stage still, which frankly, I don't, I like, I think that's fine. 
because I can still get laughs and I don't always, I kind of resent the fact that people, understandably so, need something to hold on to while they watch somebody. It's not about the material, it's about you as a person. And, you know, sometimes I just think like, well, you know, I don't need to matter so much. I can just sort of, these are just thoughts that I've had and I'll relay them to you. And if you like the thoughts or if you think they're funny, you don't have to like them even. Uh, that we can have a good time. But I think a lot of people, that, I think that's a stupid way of thinking. I, I think it's kind of arrogant. Because um, people want to like you. You know what I mean? There's some people, you know, you see it all the time, that uh, I personally don't like as comedians. I think their writing is boring or whatever. But they're on stage and they're just so nice. And people like being in the same room as them. And it makes them feel better to sit and watch them go up. Uh, even if they're not being funny, you know, some comics are just like a nice, you know, like a Ted Lasso, just like a little just comfort, you know what I mean? Like, hey, we're not going to challenge any, you know, um, and yeah, let alone material, just kind of energy. I bring up the energy of a guy that's going to talk about like a 1988 election, you know what I mean? Like I, I bring up the energy of, of somebody who's going to talk about a niche thing, but I'm going to say that it is killing America it is the bane of my existence. It is it is uh, turning the youth into robots or whatever. You know, I I think people really assume when I get on stage that they're like, okay, he's he might do a Bill Hicks thing, you know, um, because of the way I speak, um, which I'm not saying is a struggle for me. I don't think that. I think I I do a lot of times on stage am way too intense, and you know, it's funny because I'll riff. Uh, with my friends and uh, you know one of my friends Meredith Casey very funny comic she'll be like you are so funny uh, off stage and and I think you're very funny on stage but I like you off stage more because you're having more fun you really are just so you're you're laughing more and you're 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 just having a better time joking with your friends than you are on stage and you know the sort of immediate surface level answer is like well because it just is more fun honestly sometimes uh because you're, you know, your audience is funny people who are going to say funny things back and they're not ruining a set. There's no more, there's no stakes to it, you know? Um, but what I, you know, I realized the real goal is to make that audience act as your friends in a way, in a way, not like you want them to talk to you, but that you can feel a comfortability with them to be honest and that they will feel a comfortability of you to want to listen to the next honest thing that you're going to say. When I say be honest, I'm not saying, you know, like tell some deep, dark truth about that. I'm saying if your honesty is a level of silliness you're going to reach, and if you can do that with them, then it's really great. It's the same as finding somebody you love. It's a, you know, when you find somebody you love and you really connect with, it's a person that you can tell any joke to, and you don't feel judged for it, and you know you can really go for it, and you become funnier and more likable when you do that, because you have the freedom to fully be yourself. And I, I'm, you know, I try and find that on stage every time. And it's funny because it's there. It's always there. The potential for a crowd to believe in what I'm doing is already there because they bought the tickets and sat in the seats. So in some respect, before they even see me walk on stage, they believe that things could go well. And maybe I go on stage and they don't fucking know who I am. And then that, then that goes down a little. And they're like, I, I don't know anymore about believing in this. I'm going to wait for the more famous guy, whatever. But still, they're there. They didn't get up and leave. They're there. They're sitting down, which means in some level of their brain, they're going, this is worth being here for. 
and we're going to give it a shot. And so the chance to really love them and have a good time and connect is is always there. It's, it's never not, but it's very easy to get on stage and to think like, oh, well, I have to conquer this crowd, or I have to trick them, or or whatever. And it's like, I don't know, it's almost like, uh, I was talking about this, it's like, like flirting, like when a guy flirts with a woman, the girl always knows the game. Whether it's like a cool guy, like a slick guy, or it's like kind of like a nerdy guy, or whatever, every guy has their act. And under the act is, I think you're very pretty, I'd like to have sex with you or go on a date with you. That's the whole point of everything being said. But it's rude to say that, and it makes people feel bad to say that. Uh, so everybody has their own dance. And women look at that dance, and they and they don't think, whoa, that guy's so cool in his leather jacket. They go, oh, that's cute. He's like a leather jacket guy, and he's like trying to be kind of cool and suave with me. And like, you know, I see what he's doing, but it's kind of working. It's fun. You know, it's like, it's okay that I can that I can totally see behind the curtain because it was obvious since the moment you walked up to me that you wanted to fuck me. So now I'm looking at you going, well, what's your angle on trying to fuck me? And, you know, then eventually it's like, well, he's a little dumb, but I, you know, I really like his effort and, and the jacket is kind of cool, you know? Um, and so I know what's going on, but I'll, I'll go into it enough. You seem nice and I'll fuck you. Um, and stand up is almost similar where you get on and the crowd is kind of like, okay, like what's your act? What's your angle? Uh, I know what you want from me. You want me to laugh. And, you know, I think it's it's kind of that that thing of when people say, like, be honest on stage. It's it's like, yes, but don't go up and just say, I want to fuck you. Go up and 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 present your honesty, present that you want to fuck them in a way that is uh, enjoyable and entertaining and sort of uh, sort of hides just the full carnal aspect. And and, uh, you know, because you can ask to fuck somebody by asking to fuck them. Or you can ask to fuck them by really trying to get to know them and having a good time over the night, which is all one big question of, could I have sex with you? But you're doing it as a human should of, uh, well, let's talk. Let me get you a drink. Let me hear about you. Cool. You know? Um, the only difference is that, you know, if you're like on a date or something, you can eventually go, okay, well, in this effort of uh, talking to you, I've actually realized I don't want to have sex with you. I'm going to leave now. You can do that. I mean, it's a little rude, but you can do that. In comedy, sometimes you're on stage and you go, oh, okay, so I've asked this of you. I've realized I, I actually don't like this crowd very much. And I kind of, I'd rather not be here, but you just have to stay on stage. And then that's where the love really comes in handy, where you're like, okay, I, I don't like these people. I don't want to make them laugh. I don't enjoy performing to them, but I do have to. So maybe I could fake it till I make it. And, and by make it, I mean I will give them good energy and then hopefully they'll surprise me and give it back, and I'll be on stage thinking to myself, what an asshole I am. I thought this wasn't going to be fun, and they really gave me their all, and we had a great time. And then a moment happened that neither of us maybe fully expected, but we we put our guards down enough to let it happen. Um, but, you know, it's tough. It, it is, it's interesting seeing comedy, uh, working in a comedy club, because, you know, like sometimes like Chris Rock is on stage, and you're like, wow, this is a, it's like really good material. He's really worked a long time on. He's such a great writer. It's really intelligent. There's a great narrative throughout all of this. And then you look over and you see a server taking somebody's order, which is fine. It has to happen. But I'm thinking, oh, so that person is going to miss the next one to two minutes of what Chris is talking about. Just completely not hearing a word because they're doing something else. 
and then they're going to come back in. He's going to say the punchline. The whole room's going to laugh. They're not going to have any idea. And the people surrounding them are also not going to laugh because they're distracted by the server. It is it's just a funny, inevitable thing. There's not really a point to that. But uh, it is, I mean, comedy clubs are funny, especially working at the comedy store where it's a showcase club. So there's so many different comedians all night and the night changes throughout every comic. And they're the most famous comics in the world that do Radio City Music Hall or whatever. But now they're in this club and drinks have to be served. And so it's like stuff that could eventually go on a special that could win a Grammy. But at the moment, uh, a group of 10 people aren't hearing it because they are, they're ordering drinks, which keeps the doors open. So it's this real kind of snake eating itself. I remember Sebastian Maniscal. I don't remember this. I was told this by funny comedian and door guy Zach Chapaloni. Uh He, uh, he told me that Sebastian Maniscalco was on stage, who, if you don't know, you should know. He's one of the top five selling comedians in the world, I believe. Uh, did a special at Radio City. Does fucking arenas and the biggest theaters in the world all the time. Um, he's hilarious. He's on stage, and it was kind of a tight room. And, you know, when a guy like him comes to the club, he's not really doing a material to a room of 350 people this guy does 27 theaters uh, cedars you know uh, all the time so he's doing stuff that's newer maybe it's never been said before to then do in bigger and bigger and bigger places until it's showtime so right now this is practice this is experimentation that's why it's the greatest of all sets to see because you see a guy at the top of his game selling the most tickets in the world but now he's he's showing you stuff that's not done yet but anyway he's in there it's a tight room. He's working it. He's doing great. Because even a tight room, when he walks on stage, the crowd's excited. They have more belief. you know. But also, that fades away, and you just got to do your thing, and he's good enough to do it. So he's working them. He's getting them. But he hasn't been on stage for too long, so they're still tight, still opening up. Um, opening up. Pause. And when he's on stage doing his thing, there's like a quiet moment. And then one of our servers comes in, she is an alcoholic. She's probably in her 50s. She's worked there for fucking years. Brings her own alcohol to work because you can get you can drink at, at work sometimes. But uh, if she did it to the extent she wanted to, it would be an obvious problem. So she comes in with her own fifth in her back pocket, drunk all the time. She walks in to the main room of the comedy store with a tray of drinks at a silent moment during one of the biggest comedians in the world sets and just out loud just goes... Drinks, 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 drinks. Out loud and to nobody. And it's like immediately, you know, from what I heard, people are just looking back like, who the fuck is this? What is she doing? I don't even think Sebastian took time out of his set to mention it because he's been, I mean, he's humongous. He's been working that club for years. He knows this woman. He knows her issues. He's not going to solve them in this set. But I mean, that's the fun of comedy and comedy clubs is like, you know, there's a lot more, like, reverence for music, you know what I mean? But comedians just just still have to perform in, in places that the comedy club is the greatest club in the world. But because it's a club, drinks have to be served. So it doesn't matter who you are. An order will probably be taken at some point during your set, if not at the same time by four different servers in four different places in the room. And that that brings you down to a good place, to an honest place, to a level place, to a human place, you know? You shouldn't only perform in fucking, you know, arenas where people are, like, locked in. But even in an arena, people are distracted, and you just don't even know. So the clubs are, I guess, a good test for it. 
But how do you not drink while all that's going on? You know what I mean? I don't know how all that happens and you just don't fucking drink. It is weird because it's like, uh, I want to quit drinking so I can just wake up with more energy during the day. Like, I didn't drink last night, and if I had, uh, I might not be recording this podcast right now. I would have gotten a later start and then said, oh, fuck, now it's too late, and then I would have never recorded the podcast, you know? So that's why. That's why I want to quit drinking, because I want to wake up better. I don't, I don't like doing something that slows me down, makes me fatter, and I'm already so lazy as it is, so I can't afford to wake up with like a hangover or a problem and be like, ugh, ugh. that just doesn't work. But also, with the amount of work it takes to be a professional comedian, which I'm not even aware of, I know the amount of work it takes to be a failure comedian who's 24, and even that is enough that you go, I need a fucking drink, I need a break, you know? So it's this real sort of uh, rock in a hard place where it's like, damn, to do the work that I need to do to have a successful career, I really can't be drinking. But to do the work I need to do to have a successful career really makes me want to drink and really makes it feels like a drink would really help the whole process. So that was really gross how I put that zin in. I try to do it quick with my fingers. If you saw it, if you're a video watcher, I'm sorry. But I mean, yeah, that's the thing is, okay, well, I, you know, I can't drink, but I got these nicotine pouches and these do much more for me than alcohol ever has. I've never woken up and been like, ah, too much nicotine last night. And even if I do that, it's because I smoke too many cigarettes because I was drunk. So it's like, well, if I didn't drink, you know, drinking's the problem, you know, you just realize what you normalize. Like I really, the hard part of quitting drinking is, uh, is not that I can't get hammered anymore. It's not that I can't, you know, take like 12 shots. It's that I can't have like a Miller Lite. You know, if you're sober, somebody offers you a Miller Lite, you have to say no. To me, that is mind boggling. What an insane concept. Somebody offers you a Miller Lite out of the kindness of their heart at a barbecue that is in honor of their dead niece that they have been nice enough to invite you to. Rest in peace. They offer you a Miller Lite and you have to look at them and say, no, no, those are bad. They're not good for me. They're not good for anyone. And I'm not going to drink that. But I will enjoy this barbecue sober. And you'll look over at me. And you'll look in my eyes and me in a conversation holding a club soda or a Fanta. And you'll say, he's sober right now. He's sitting outside at this casual barbecue where there's nothing to do but have a good time. And he's sober. He's chosen to be sober. It just makes you feel crazy because there's a human urge to let loose and to celebrate. And I don't know what it is that, you know, maybe my problem, honestly, is not appreciating celebration enough. Where in my mind, it's like, I don't need a fucking reason to drink. I think... If there's no reason to celebrate, might be the biggest reason to drink because you got nothing to fucking celebrate. So fuck it, let's get drunk and feel better about this situation that sucks. Okay, but fucking, uh, yeah, it's just like, but other people are like, oh, you know, I don't drink much. But if it's like a special occasion, I'll drink. It's like, wow, you must really appreciate special occasions. Because to me, a special occasion is like, ooh, I can drink and everybody else will be drinking. I don't have to feel bad about drinking for once. Thank God. I was drinking on Tuesday. Everybody judged me. But now it's Sunday and football's on, so I can drink at 11 a.m. And everybody loves it. 
I walk into my friend's place at 11 a.m. He says, do you need a beer? And I say, yes. And that was the correct answer. If I said no, he'd go, oh, okay. Like some situations, such as football, let's say the Super Bowl, if you say no to a beer, it gets the same reaction that you would if you asked your friend for a beer at Wednesday at 11 a.m. Because at a Super Bowl party, if a guy goes, you want a beer, and you go, no, they go, oh. And if you went to your friend's house at 11 a.m. on a Wednesday and said, hey, can I have a beer? They go, oh, you know. And some of you might be thinking, do you really have friends that if you say no to getting a beer, they go, oh. And the answer is no. But I do have friends, like anybody has friends, that when I show up, I went to Buffalo Wild Wings recently, and I didn't drink at Buffalo Wild Wings, and nobody shamed me for it, but there was a conversation. You can't sit down at Buffalo Wild Wings and go, can I have an Arnold Palmer and not have your friends go, you're not drinking? And you go, yeah. And then immediately you start talking a mile a minute. And you're like, but, you know, it's only like a week. I'm not really sure if I'm quitting. It's just, I don't know. There's some sort of, uh, I feel like a weight that gets put on other people when you tell them, oh, I'm sober. I'm not doing the thing that you're all doing right now. They start to uh, feel like they have to worry about you. And, you know, I hope they don't because I personally don't like growing up with with addicts, any addict I meet that I am not directly blood related to. I do not give a fuck about their journey in any way, shape or form. Now, that being said, I have friends that struggle with addiction. I don't have like best friends that do and it ruins their life. Like if certain, like if, you know, like if one of my really productive friends started doing a pills and I just saw it tearing down their life, I would probably uh, try and help them more than I would expect myself to. But I will say after years of having addicts in the family, worrying about them, sometimes trying to talk to them, you know, I'm the little brother, so you're not doing too much talking, but worrying about them really thinking about it every second. Uh, you eventually get to a point where you have to let them go. And usually that happens like a year or two before they get clean. Is It's been going on for like six years and you go, all right, whether or not you live or die, I just hope you stop doing heroin, okay? If you die, if that's the only way to stop doing heroin, that's fine. If you keep living and you get sober, that's even better. But I am completely detached from this situation now and I don't care anymore. You have to do that with your own family. So then when you meet people out in the world that you've known for two years and they're like, oh, I'm struggling with drinking, my first thought is like, yeah, I don't know, fucking fix it. That is not my problem. Because you've learned after years and years of watching it, the only way to learn is to suffer for years watching it. Not like it was my problem, but the only way to learn is that eventually once they get clean is you go, oh, you just had to do that yourself. None of what we did really mattered that much. Maybe in some ways you knew people cared about you enough, so it, it didn't, you weren't allowed to have the excuse of nobody gives a fuck anyway. But you can make up that excuse if you want, anytime. So you just learn eventually it's somebody's own decision to quit. And when you meet addicts out in real life or you hear about it on TV, you have a much different reaction than people who didn't grow up with addicts. People who didn't grow up with addicts act like they can fix it with one conversation. They're like, oh, God, poor baby, it just you should just go to therapy and just, it'll be okay. It's like, no, a lot of people will probably have to hit a rock bottom. Like, you know, like, you know, my brother got clean after he didn't have a place to live because my dad was moving. So he just had to go to a sober living and that was the place that he could live and he just had to be sober to do it. And that's really what, what got him there was not 
his own internal decision. It was just, you know, fucking, well, this is, it's this or I'm homeless. And, you know, it's going to be harder to get heroin if I'm spending all my time being homeless, you know. I mean, it's not too hard, but, you know. And that's, you know, and you really just start to, uh, you start to care for addicts, but you also really think they're pathetic, you know, it's like, listen, man, I feel bad for you. You're in a tough place. But also, this is the peak of being pathetic. This is just you allowing yourself to continue this. And a lot of people who aren't acquainted with that will be like, well, you're being really harsh. You don't realize what it is like to be in the throes of addiction. And you're right. The closest I have to that is my smoking and my drinking. I have small examples, and even that is really hard. I can understand how a heroin addiction can seem like an insurmountable wall. The fact of the matter is people surmount that wall all the time. Tons of people quit heroin. Tons of people quit everything. So it is possible. So I'm never one to go like, oh, God, he just can't help himself. It's like he could. He's choosing not to. It's a choice. He has power. You're actually being shitty to him by saying, poor baby. You don't realize that. There's a lot of people that when they act like a, a, you know somebody who's addicted is like, God, it's just I feel so bad for him. It's like then you don't believe in them. You're not treating them like a person anymore. You're helping them. You're treating them like a, like a puppy caught in a bear trap, like they're defenseless. It's like, no, you should give them enough humanity to resent their decision-making because they are worthy of that judgment, because they're people that deserve love and hope. And sometimes that hope is you saying, hey, stop being a fucking idiot. Do you know I'm calling you a fucking idiot? Because you're better than this. If I didn't think you were better than this, I'd say, oh, this is really sad. I think everybody in my family that's ever struggled is better than their struggles. That's why I hated them at times. Because that's a reason you hate. You go, I hate you. Because you're so much better than this. That's what makes it pathetic. If you were really helpless and defenseless, I would just feel bad for you. You know? Like a guy that struggles with like schizophrenia. It's like, I feel bad for him. He can't not be schizophrenic. Now that being said, that changes now with medication that can mitigate it. So if you choose to not take medication and freak out, I don't feel bad for you because you had a, you had a decision to make to fix it and you didn't fix it. And now whatever happens is, is your fault. I won't judge you for what you're doing when you're all fucked up, but I will judge you for the fact that you've allowed yourself to become fucked up. And that, that is sad. But yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of people, who are unaware of the context or whatever would say that a lot of my views are like pretty uh, sort of dumb and archaic and just mean. And, and it's, you know, it's not that simple Cooper. And I, I think the answer is that it is simple. It's not easy. Quitting heroin is as simple as one day you wake up and you never do it again. What's not easy about it is that you will have physical withdrawals. You will have mental withdrawals. And, and just those cravings will persist and they will ruin your life for a few months until you can kind of function. And then still you have to have the wherewithal to say, okay, now that I feel okay, I cannot go back. That is simple. There's just nothing easy about it. But it's simple. And people say, well, it's not easy, so it's not simple. It is simple. Things that are very simple are not easy. And I'll keep saying simple and easy over and over and over again. But, you know, so that's why it's, that's why it's tough to see uh, addict traits in me because it's like, oh, fuck, that level of, of patheticness is, is in me too. And it's in everybody. And really the level of patheticness is, is at the same time a level of power that I make a choice every day to make these decisions. So 
you can say, oh, I'm so pathetic because I have the choice and I make the wrong decision. Or you could say, oh, I'm so powerful, I'm ruining my life with my own decisions. And if I use that power to make better decisions, I would have a much better life. And I think that's the way you have to think is to go, oh, well, I'm not powerless. I have choices. I just keep making the wrong one. But if I make the right one tomorrow, maybe I'll make the right one the next day. And if I don't make the right one the next day, I have the next day. It's just over and over and over again of pounding your fucking head into a wall to do the right thing. And you know what sucks about life, but it's the whole good part, the beautiful part about it, is that everybody has this problem. Whether it's like addiction or mental health or or uh, just dealing with their family members. is Everybody has the one thing that can just fucking ruin them. And if they just didn't do it, we'd all be great. And everybody, everybody has that one thing. And sometimes it's as simple as like, you know, my mom is a really positive person, but she's had a lot of struggles in her life. You know, her dad shot himself in the head and, uh, you know, we've talked about that. And she goes, you know, I just learned in life not to take things personally, you know? And, and that relates to her dad shooting himself in the fucking head in that, um, you know, she could have, she could have called herself a victim and said, you know, my life really sucks. Bad things always happen to me. Um, and she could wallow in that and she could use that as an excuse to be shitty. Or she could say, that was a really bad thing. That really fucked me up. That changed the course of my life. But it didn't happen to me specifically. It happened to my whole family and it happened to my own father. He's the one that's really, he died from this, you know, because he couldn't stop it. And, you know, so I could say, oh, well, my life sucks. My dad killed himself. I'm just going to do drugs or whatever my whole life. Or you could go, that was a really bad thing. That really hurt me. Uh, I still have things I want to do. I still have uh, happiness I want to feel. And I'm going to go after and I'm going to get that, you know. And so my mom, you know, she's never somebody that struggled with addiction. But she has struggled with obstacles in her life that were completely out of her control. Um, a major obstacle. Um, and, you know. And and even if you don't have that, uh, all of us at the very least have a bunch of small things that pile up that, that can affect you just as much, you know? And you just have to find a way to fucking, you know, do the right simple thing. It's just not easy, and it's kind of boring, you know? But also, you know, living like a piece of shit is kind of boring. Like, I've realized I like getting fucked up and going out. But also, I don't like driving home at 6 a.m. on cocaine while people who work harder than me go to work and then going to my bed and sitting in my bed and jacking off and freaking out for four hours until I can sleep until 4 p.m. and then getting nothing done. Then I don't like that either. I like it a lot less than I do a boring... I like it a lot less, yeah, than I do a boring night, you know? Sometimes you go home and you go, oh, that night kind of sucks. But then it's great because you wake up and... All of a sudden, without even meaning to, you have a good morning. Because you go, oh, God, I woke up. I had a lot of energy today. Well, do you know why? It's because you didn't fucking ruin yourself the night before, you know? Sorry it wasn't exciting. It's also, I think, selfish. I think it's entitled. I think there's a lot of selfishness and entitlement to an addict brain. That it's like, I need to feel good. I'm going to use drugs to feel good. And then the real selfishness and entitlement comes in when you're really deep in it and you start stealing from you know, your family, which none of my family did. I'm not putting that. In. I'm just saying it's an example. You start stealing money from your family so you can get drugs because you go, I need this to feel. It's like you're pretty entitled. 
you're pretty selfish to think that, you know, you, that life is supposed to afford you good feelings all the time. It's not the point of being here. There's a lot of different feelings you're supposed to feel. To think you should always feel pleasure is is stupid and childish. And a lot of people I know would listen to this and say, well, Cooper, it's not selfish. It's not entitled. They are addicted. Yes, that addiction can take over your brain in the same way a mental illness can. But once again, there are still choices you make. And the people that quit doing those drugs are people that eventually go, okay, I'm not a kid. I'm not allowed to just say this doesn't feel good, so I'm going to get high. I have to be an adult about this. I have to make decisions. I have to live a good life, which means even in the throes of this addiction, I'm going to say to myself, okay, I'm not allowed to just feel good when I want to feel good. I need to do things that will make me feel good as a whole. I need to conquer this addiction. I need to achieve things in life so I can feel a sense of satisfaction and contentment and efficacy. The problem is an addict feels no efficacy in life because their addiction has reduced their efficacy and ability to do things and be productive to nothing. So they wake up every day feeling no sense of purpose besides I need to get high. And they need to get high first because they don't believe they're good at anything else. Well, not first. First, because they're fully addicted, and if they don't, they're going to start shaking. And and then second, because, yeah, they don't think they're good at anything else. They, they think that's you know, that is now what their life is for. I think that's, you know, the way people feel before they die of drugs. You know, I was watching an interview with like young, uh, like uh, homeless people on the street, just young punks on the street in like the 80s. And they were all drug addicted. And they're like, what do you think you're going to be doing in five years? And they're like, I'll be dead. And it's so funny, the, the power the brain has to go, I'm slowly going to kill myself over. It's the biggest decision you could make in life is to kill yourself. And they've taken all their power and all their potential and used it to guarantee death, you know? And I'm sure a lot of those people died. I'm sure they died a lot sooner than they thought they'd die. And I bet when they were dying, they thought to themselves, ah, shit, you know, this was the wrong decision. But you can really fool yourself and you just get trapped, you know? And, you know, and I'm far from that. But the thing is that it's like, it's I'm far from the hole I'm being dragged into, but the power of the pull is the same. I just have more distance to claw and grab onto some rocks. I'm not right on the edge to where I'm lost. I'm far away, but the pull is strong. So you got to go, okay, we got more time. We got distance from, we got about a, you know, we got a, a football field's distance from this hole. I can grab onto stuff. I can really start getting stronger before I'm too close to really be able to climb back out, you know? Sometimes going into that hole means a drug-induced psychosis, and now how, what the fuck are you going to do, you know? But I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to fucking uh, just deteriorate into nothing. I mean, this podcast is already uh, not the best as it is. I can't afford to make my brain any weaker. Uh, I don't know. I hope this episode was interesting. Uh, the last episode was kind of similar, and I enjoyed that. I thought I would kind of do a similar thing today. Uh, I'm sorry I don't talk about the news or things happening in the world. I'd like to think that's kind of the appeal of the podcast, but I hope... Uh, I don't know. I think pretty easily this might just be kind of a diary that's pretty annoying to listen to. But I like to think, you know, you read somebody else's diary, maybe you find some of your own thoughts in there, and you feel a little bit better about how you feel. Anyway, thanks so much for coming. Love you. Bye-bye.